Ready. This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language and subject matter. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them. And my aim, as always, is education. All of the information I have is from public sources. Hello, class. How's everybody tonight or today or whenever it is that you're listening? It's daytime here and it's raining and it's going to snow. I'm sorry. I know you didn't tune in to hear the weather. So I'll stop with the weather report. This is going to be a multi-parter and I'm going to have to put it out on non-consecutive days, meaning like not all at once. And I'm sorry. I know you don't like that, but there's two reasons for that. One of them is what I call information overload on this case. There's so much and I don't know if it's my OCD or what, but I have this tendency to want to use and gather every iota of information on a case that I can find. And I have to force myself to narrow it down at a point and say, um, nobody cares what his shoe size was. You know, be more realistic in terms of length and time and so forth. And the other one, uh, I think I did mention this. I think I, I don't know if I mentioned it on my social media or at some point, I don't know, but I've had shingles and it's, the actual rash is gone, but it's still like sore. But they told me it was from stress and I gonna have to um, slow myself down as far as this is a lot of work. This is hard work, especially with, I don't mean to like whine. Well, you know me, I always have to whine about something. All the research and writing and then recording and editing, I do all myself. I don't have anybody to help me. So it's it's a lot of hard work. So that's why it's going to be spaced out. And here's a little, I guess you could call it an advertisement. In my show notes, you'll see a I don't think it's an actual link, but it says if you want to contribute to the show to help me keep going, and it has a link to my PayPal account, feel more than free to drop me a couple dollars if you can. Podcasting is expensive. There's a fee for this, a fee for that, and equipment, and books. I, You know me, I always try to buy a book, and all kinds of hidden fees that you would never even imagine until you start doing it. And like I said, I have to do that all myself. So please, please, please. I know, okay, I don't mean to make a telephone out of this, but I did feel the need to explain why I'm going to be stretching this case out, because there's so much information on it. It's a request from my friend Jenny, and she asked for a killer cop. And I thought for a few seconds, and I thought, oh, I know this dude who we're going to talk about. Well, I knew a little bit about him, not a whole lot. I knew that he was a cop and also a serial killer, but I had no idea what a depraved, evil, sick fuck he really was. We're talking depraved and sadistic up on the scale of Albert Fish. So before I start, I'm going to give a blanket trigger warning that this case has every disturbing element that you could possibly think of. Um, murder, of course, sexual things, torture, S&M, necrophilia, cannibalism. Uh, did I forget anything? Oh, and he also fancied himself a writer. And I have some of his writings. I'll read some of them to you just to give you an insight into this sick, twisted mind that he had, which is a very dark and disturbing place. And these writings are very dark, graphic, and disturbing. Plus, there's my usual potty mouth. So if you're offended by any of these things, first of all, why are you here? But second, now's your chance to turn back. So if you're still here, as you've seen the title, we're going to talk about Gerard Schaefer, who was 
known as Florida's first serial killer. And he was, I'll talk about psychology last, of course, but the sadism that this dude practiced is, I don't know if I want to say beyond, but I can maybe think of two, off the top of my head, two or three other serial killers who are in the same league as him as far as sadistic. And what makes this guy so bad, I think, well, besides the torture and the sadism and the murder, is the fact that he was, at the time of the crimes, at the time of his arrest, a sheriff's deputy. And it's always bad when somebody is a serial killer, of course, but when somebody who is a sworn law enforcement officer commits a crime, it's like a million times worse because we, in case you didn't know, anybody who has a badge goes before a judge and takes an oath to protect and uphold the Constitution. And I took my oath very, very seriously. To see people abuse it, I kind of take it personally. It's the, the fact that these are the people who are supposed to be protecting us are the ones that we need protection from. And if you abuse that public trust, you are the very lowest form of life that there is. Like down there under plankton and amoeba and shit like that. So I'm going to handle this in the way that I like to, especially with serial killers, construct a timeline, start with his childhood and family history, and follow his life throughout his careers and his marriages. He was married twice and the murders and his eventual capture and the investigation and, of course, psychology. But there's going to be an additional chapter with him because he, as I mentioned, was a prolific writer and also an artist. And there's actually a lot of his, I don't know if I want to call it work, that you can get on Murderbilia websites. I think you know what those are, where you, you can actually, if you have money that you want to throw away, actually pay for his writings and drawings and whatnot. Don't know what, well. I plan to do a whole episode on Murderbilia in the collection of mementos related to crimes, because the topic fascinates me. But I am glad that he wrote some stuff, because it's so incredibly disturbing and disgusting that it provides me something to chew on from a psychological viewpoint. And it's a perfect window into what he was thinking. So I want to spend quite a bit of time analyzing his works. Geography is going to figure quite a bit in this story, and you'll see why later on. So I want to take a few minutes to talk about the area in which this guy lived and operated and did his dirty deeds. This takes place in the beautiful, they call it the Treasure Coast of Florida, which is the Atlantic Coast, I would say like halfway down the state. So Gerard John Schaefer was born on March 26, 1946 in Neenaw, Wisconsin. His parents were Doris and Gerard Sr., and supposedly they called the dad Jerry, and the son went by John. I'm probably just going to call him Schaefer. They supposedly had a shotgun wedding. You know, I'm sure you know what that is. And supposedly didn't really want to get married, but they were both Catholic, and they were either pressured by their family or felt that they should get married. They went on to have two other kids, Sarah and Gary. John, or Jerry, whatever you call him, described his dad as verbally abusive. His dad had a good job as a traveling salesman for the Kimberly Clark Company, and his mom was what you would call a stay-at-home mom. They moved to Nashville, Tennessee, when his dad was transferred there, and then he would be transferred again to Atlanta when little Jerry was about four. They lived on London Road in Atlanta till Jerry was about 14. He says in a prison interview, and if you want to look him up, you, sh you should go onto YouTube, put in Gerard Schaefer, and there's all kinds of prison interviews. He claims that he went to Catholic school all his life, but he didn't really. He went to regular school 
until he was in high school, and then he went to a Catholic school called St. Thomas Aquinas. Jerry is what you would call a pathological liar, or in layman's terms, full of shit. When you, if you see him on the interview, he has this creepy shit-eating grin the whole time. He laughs. He is, I guess, like the typical psychopath, charming and manipulative. He talks with his hands. He tells, I don't even know who he's talking to in the interview, but he's telling whoever, like, what I know now are, are just straight-out lies. And he's so convincing. I can see how he duped all of his victims, which we're going to hear about later on. But just keep this in mind, that he he was younger. He was quite the good-looking guy. I have some pictures of him in my social media. He wasn't the um, bald, fat fuck that he looked like when he was older. But he, he was good-looking and charming. And if you're trying to get somebody to come with you or get into your car, that's always a plus. In 1960, the family moved to Fort Lauderdale in Florida. He was about 14. His dad wasn't around much. He traveled a lot for work, plus he screwed around. He also drank a lot, which, according to Jerry, would eventually destroy the family. When his dad was around, he took his son, Jerry, hunting and fishing. And Jerry claims that he wasn't wanted and that his dad favored his sister, Sarah. So when he was about 12, he decided that he liked to wear his mother's clothes. And he claimed it was to get attention. I guess he was thinking, and this is what he says. And every, remember I just said he's a pathological liar. So everything he says has to be taken with a big grain of salt. He claims he wore women's clothes to get attention from his dad because he thought that because he favored the sister, Maybe if he saw his, his son in a dress, it would suddenly endear him to him. But supposedly his dad just punished him for it. He also started stealing his mother's and sister's underwear. And this would start a lifelong habit. He would go in the woods, tie himself to trees, wear this women's underwear, and of course masturbate. And the tighter he tied himself, the more sexually aroused he was. He, he told this to a prison psychologist. And if you're familiar with the story of Dennis Rader, you know, BTK, I was getting like big Dennis Rader vibes from this. That was his thing, was tying himself up. And if you want to see pictures of him, they're really disturbing. I'm talking about Dennis right now. What he would do, he would tie himself up in, in like women's underwear, makeup and masks and weird creepy shit. And I guess he had a camera because we're talking like a while before cell phones. Take pictures of himself in this get up. And Schaefer did the exact same thing only without the photos. Another thing he did that I just hate is he set traps for bunnies and he would torture and kill them. And this sexually excited him. He said that when he was in the woods, he could be himself, which I'm all for. You know, nature, love nature, get out there. And I love trees too, but not quite the same way he did. So if you're keeping score, he's only 12 and he's already into bondage, cross-dressing, S&M and torturing animals. So um, it's not too much of a stretch to imagine that he's not going to turn out right. He claimed that his parents never had a good relationship. And if they did have a shotgun wedding, that's not real surprising. He said his dad always criticized him and his mother was always nagging him to do better. Then his, um, I guess you would call it playtime, was kind of bizarre. He said, quote, I wanted to die. I couldn't please my father. So in playing games, I always got killed, end quote. I don't know exactly what he did, but he enacted situations in which he ended up either killing himself play, pretend, of course, or somehow getting killed. I've read about other serial killers that did this. I think it was Ed Camper who said he played gas chamber when he was little, or one of them, um, they're starting to run together in my head. There's so many floating around in my head. One of them played guillotine with his sister's Barbie dolls. So apparently this is a thing with serial killers, is fantasizing about death 
and suicide and murder at a young age. And he said, quote, I'd tie myself up to a tree, struggle to get free, and I'd get excited sexually and do something to hurt myself, end quote. Then he started to eventually graduate into fantasies about hurting women. He went to St. Thomas Aquinas High School, which was Catholic school, as I said, and these are some things that his classmates said about him. Some said he was average, like everybody else, but some said he was weird, out of it, a loner, insensitive, morbid, preoccupied with girls, and here's a, what I think is a telling quote. He would, quote, practically stand on his head to see upper girl's skirt, end quote. If you're wondering where I'm getting all these quotes, it's from a book, excellent book, a, a long book, and I'll talk more about it later, and of course it'll be in my notes. His high school yearbook listed his activities as football, golf, perfect attendance, school paper, Blessed Sacrament Society, no idea what that is, in the science club. And he also also supposedly did strange things in school, like talk to himself in class. A fellow schoolmate, a male, said that he, quote, kept a bunch of us enthralled one night talking about his adventures with girls, end quote. And I'd be willing to bet that a good amount of that was bullshit. But his first girlfriend was named Cindy, and he met her when he was 14. He was with her for three years. He would take her into the woods, and that's where he likes to play, and made her enact scripted scenarios in which he would tear off her clothes and have really rough sex with her, like a, like living out a rape fantasy. Later on, he would claim that she was the one who requested this. But this is actually not true. As you can imagine, it was Jerry that wanted this kind of um, sex play. And eventually Cindy said, um, that's enough. You're too weird. You're aggressive and violent. Fuck this and broke up with him. Interestingly, in school, remember he went to a Catholic school, he questioned religious dogma. And a nun supposedly was upset when he wrote a long essay scientifically challenging the virgin birth of Jesus. No comment. A neighbor commented that he liked shooting things that you couldn't eat, like songbirds and land crabs. And this will become very important. Remember this name. One of his next-door neighbors was Lee Hainline, and he would spy on her. And supposedly her bedroom window faced his house, unfortunately for her. He would watch her undress, and once she asked him if he would be her tennis partner at their tennis club. This fuck had a tennis club and a country club. That's, ugh, I don't like people like that. And no offense if you belong to a tennis club or country club, but you know what kind of people I'm talking about. Snooty people. So what this family did, Lee's family, remember back in the day, um, I don't know if you did, but we used to, and I think a lot of people did, hang your clothes outside on a clothesline to get dry. Well, I guess Lee's underwear was hanging outside, and he decided to help himself to some. He would spy on her in her window while wearing her underwear that he stole, while hurting himself and whacking off. That's so disturbing. He would tell a later girlfriend, he would point to the window and say, quote, that's where Lee undresses for me, and she knows I'm watching. I'm going to put a stop to that, end quote. Very ominous sentence right there. So remember that. And I think it's safe to say that this poor girl had no idea that her little perverted neighbor was watching her. And I think that in his mind, he might have thought that she was teasing him or doing like a strip tease because that's the way his mind worked. When he was 17, he got another girlfriend. This one is going to play a major role later. So remember her. He met Sandy Stort at a school dance. She described him as dazzling, and her family was impressed by his polite manners. Maybe they were the country club set too. He would take her into the Everglades and seemed amused when she wouldn't kill animals for sport. 
she said that he was a, quote, sensitive and enthusiastic lover. Just like with Cindy, his past girlfriend, she broke it off when he got too aggressive and violent during sex. And he said that he stalked her for a while, which is very disturbing. She also said that she saw violent arguments between Jerry and his dad. And he would tell her stories of Cindy, his ex-girlfriend, and the rape scenario things that they did. Don't know why. But he graduated from high school in 1964. And you'll never guess. Like, you will literally never guess what he aspired to be. A priest. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you because I told you, you would never guess it. He applied to St. John's Seminary, and he was rejected. He said, quote, they said I didn't have enough faith. I didn't think it was fair, end quote. So to get back at them, I guess he just stopped going to church altogether and decided he'd been, quote, under a certain Catholic mind control thing, end quote. I have absolutely no idea why he would want to become a priest. Well, maybe I kind of do, but save that for psychology. So he entered Broward County Community College. One of the classes he took was creative writing, and he confessed to his teacher that he had some homicidal urges, and the teacher referred him to a school counselor named Dr. Neil Crispo. Jerry told Dr. Crispo that he wanted to join the army in order to kill people or things, and he said that he shot cows, beheaded them with a machete, and then sexually assaulted their bodies. And when I first saw that, I was like, bullshit. You know, that's something he's making up. But I listened to a podcast with the author of the book that was like the main source that I used. I'll, I'll tell you about it, about the book. But the author was on podcast and he was from this area and he was familiar with all of this stuff. And he said at the time there was known to be a rash of mutilated cows that appeared to have been sexually violated. That's a sentence that you should never have to say. Besides creative writing, he didn't do very well in college. He started out as a social studies major, but changed to education with a emphasis on physical, physical education. I guess he wanted to be a gym teacher, but he had this habit of overloading himself, taking too many classes, and then he couldn't keep up and he would withdraw. He kept doing this, kept doing this. The only A's he ever got in college were in creative writing and, wait for it, golfing. Yeah. In about 1965, he joined this traveling musical road troupe called Up With People. And this was part of the moral rearmament movement. This was a religious movement in which college students traveled and sang to, I guess, other young people and shared religious experiences and tried to convert people. So basically, it was kind of a cult, a singing cult. For his junior year of college, he transferred to Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton. He had decided that he wanted to be a teacher. And it was in 1966 that his first known murder occurred. And the reason I say first known murder is he kept journals from a young age in which he would discuss his sick, disturbing fantasies and later stories are assumed by most people who've read them to be not just stories, but actual accounts of his murders. Well, anyway, in these journals, he claimed that he started killing in 1963. And remember, he's a pathological liar, so you can't really believe everything he says. But we do know the details of this murder because years later, when he was in prison, he wrote these details to his then-girlfriend-slash-fiancé, and they match up pretty closely with what the police already knew about this disappearance. And I use the word disappearance because these two girls' bodies were never found. On October 2nd, 1966, 20-year-old Nancy Leichner and 21-year-old Pamela Nader, with their boyfriends, decided to go scuba diving at Alexander Springs Park. 
It was too cold for them to scuba dive, so they started hiking through the forest. At some point, their boyfriends branched off from them. I don't know if the boys wanted to swim and the girls thought it was too cold or what. That that would make sense. So they're walking through the forest and who starts following them but Mr. Schaefer. So he approaches them and, and makes conversation and he finds out that they want to go to the beach and he offers to drive them. And they get in his car. He takes them to an area in the wetlands near the mangroves. And uh, I got to describe, in case you don't know what mangrove trees are, because it actually is important. I have a couple pictures of them in my social media. They have in southern Florida, in like the Everglades area, what are called mangrove forests. And there are trees that grow in salt water. They're really cool looking. They have a lot of roots, like they branch out all over in the bottom of them. And they're real close together and they're they're thin. And that's going to be very important. So he drives them to this mangrove forest and they're like, what's going on? So he gets out of the car. He just kind of waves at them. Then he gets a rope and gun from his trunk. He points the gun at the girls and says, get out and walk. He told them he was a CIA agent with special instructions to keep them safe. And this is not the first time he's going to use some bullshit about being in the CIA. And he's so pathetic. His stories and lies aren't even believable. They're just so fucking stupid. So he ties their hands behind their back. And he has this pulley system that's already in the mangrove trees. Like a a real complicated, complex um, hanging system to hang somebody with. I have a feeling this is what he used to do to himself. But now he's putting other people in it. So he ties Nancy up to the tree in this pulley system. And the noose around her neck is hanging from a branch. And he ties her legs. So Pam ran. Unfortunately, she tripped over these roots. Because mangroves have a lot of roots that are around. He grabbed her by the hair and dragged her back and put her in front of Nancy, who's hanging from the tree. Then he tears off Pam's clothes. He forced her to get on her knees, tied her up some more, and raped and tortured her and made Nancy watch. He said if Nancy didn't watch what was going to happen to her, he'd gouge out one of her eyes. So Nancy threw up, which you can't blame her. He said in the letter, and this is totally believable, that his biggest pleasure out of this whole activity was taunting Nancy and enjoying her reaction, you know, her horror and terror, which is an extreme form of psychological sadism. He choked Pam, then Nancy. Their bodies were never found, as I said, and for years, their boyfriends were the prime suspects because they had gone to the beach with them. So in 1967, he got his associate's degree in business administration. And in January 1968, he enrolled in Florida Atlantic University to get a teacher's license. At some point that year, he met a fellow student named Martha Fogg. She went by the name of Marty. And she was, at the time, going to Broward college studying biology and Schaefer was majoring in geography. I didn't even realize that that was a thing. Like why would anybody major in geography? What do you think you're going to do with that? But then the more I read it was like well the only thing really you can do with that is if you're going to teach. So that makes sense. They were both good students and they were interested in creative writing. They got married in December of 1968, but their marriage didn't last very long. They got divorced in 1970. Marty would never discuss her marriage with Schaefer. Never wanted to talk about him, which I guess you can't blame her. But he said it was because of an incompatible sex life. He said that he, quote, told her to put out or get out. And she chose to get out, which I think is completely understandable. Sometime that year, he wrote a suicide note. And somebody found it and took it to a Dr. Raymond Killinger, I think was a uh, therapist or psychiatrist attached to the college. He referred Schaefer to a Dr. R. McCormick, who studied him 
and fortunately for us gave a pretty in-depth psychological profile of him. And I'm going to save this till we get to psychology. He would actually see a psychiatrist named Dr. Long until May of 1971. So what is interesting, and I think a bit unusual among serial killers, is that he had enough self-awareness to realize that there's something wrong with him and he needed psychological help. And this is very rare among serial killers because some of them, I think, maybe know that there's something wrong with them or that they're not right that it's not normal to want to kill and torture people, but very few actively seek help. The only one that jumps to my mind that did, and I do want to talk about him someday, well, he's a mass murderer, James Holmes. He's the one who shot up the theater in Aurora, Colorado. And I don't want to get too much into him because he's not the topic, but he kind of much always knew that there was something not right with him. And he made several attempts at therapy. And what's chilling is that he even told his therapist that he fantasized about mass murder. So anyway, 1969 was a bad year for Schaefer and unfortunately for some other people. His parents divorced after 22 years. And the mother gave a reason as extreme cruelty chronic drunkenness and adultery. His dad would at some point go to a alcohol rehab in Tennessee. In September, Schaefer started an internship student teaching at Plantation High School. He taught social studies and we're going to see that just like pretty much everything else in his life, he royally fucked up. But first of all, Remember Lee, the next door neighbor that he used to watch undress and stole her underwear? Well, she married a dude named Charles Bonadies, and since she was still friends with Gerard, she invited him and Martha to their wedding. So Lee and Schaefer continued to have phone conversations to the point that Lee's husband was like, why the fuck are you talking to that dude? I don't know if it was excessive or he didn't like him or whatever, but he questioned the frequency of their phone conversations. Lee told him that Schaefer worked for the CIA and that he was going to hook her up with a job for the CIA. Now, I know very little about the CIA, so somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but I really don't think that if you work for the CIA that you go around telling everybody that you work for the CIA. Now, I really don't think that you tell people that you can get them a job with this agency. But anyway, September 8th, Charles comes home from work and he finds a note from his wife, Lee, and she said she was going to Miami. They lived in Fort Lauderdale, which is nearby, to talk to Schaefer about a job. Well, she never came back and he reported her missing. Police found her car at the airport, which made it look like she just ran away. Like She drove herself to the airport and took off, which is, of course, the plan. So Lee's brother called Schaefer and said, do you know anything about Lee's disappearance? Because I know that you talk to her a lot. So Schaefer said, well, she called me and asked for a ride to the airport, said she had to go to Cincinnati for something, and that was the last I ever heard of her. In either his journal or letters, he described what he did to Lee. And this is what this will be the mangrove trees again. And remember, they're close together. So this is how this is possible. He said he tied her to two trees, her wrists and ankles on one and the other wrists and ankle on another tree with the ever-present noose around her neck. He said he raped her all day and night and tortured her also, and only stopped because he had to go to class. So he comes back and strangled her with a noose, buried her in a shallow grave in the, this is like swampland, drove her car to the airport and left it there. While he's in class, he's kept thinking about what he'd done you know, and how excited he was about it. So he went back, dug up her body, 
raped her corpse repeatedly, buried it again, went back the next day, but was turned off because she was, by this time, bloating and decaying. So he does have a, I guess, a line. Like, um, you know, he'll rape and sexually assault or molest any kind of living things, but when they start bloating and decaying, that's just too much for him. Later on, he would become friends with one of his idols, Ted Bundy, and they discussed the problems with, because Bundy did this too, in case you didn't know, he would kill people and then bury them and then go back again and again and again to their bodies. But Ted said he didn't have the same problem. Uh, maggots and decay, stuff like that, didn't bother him at all. I guess he would just wipe the maggots off and, you know, keep keep at it. And interestingly, this dude, Schaefer, he did, like a lot of serial killers, study other serial killers. Bundy was a favorite. He would later on become friends with Otis Tool who, in case you're not familiar, is most noted for being killing partners with his lover-slash-partner, Henry Lee Lucas. And Otis also has about the IQ of an eggplant. Interestingly, I thought this was very interesting, guess who his, like, I don't know if you could call it his favorite, but I guess you could say favorite. The serial killer in history that he was most fascinated with with was Albert fucking Fish himself. Yes. And I saw this way early on before I read this. I said, oh my God, he's just like Albert Fish with the um, the tying himself up. And oh, I later on learned, I have to insert this. Remember when I said he was young and he tied himself to trees and hurt himself and, and I didn't know how? Well, I later read that he, like his uh, hero, Albert Fish, he whipped himself. Remember how Albert would make all kinds of implements in which to whip himself? Well, supposedly that is what Schaefer did. And you're going to see many similarities. If you remember, oh, it's about a year ago. I've been doing this for a year already. But yeah, like exactly one year ago that we covered Albert Fish. And the only real difference is that Albert preferred young kids. I think you would call him a, a pedophile. Schaefer preferred um, girls either his age or younger. You might call him a hebophile, which is the sexual preference of people who are like between puberty and the age of consent, meaning like maybe 13 through 16 or so. But anyway, they were both sick fucks. So now remember at this time, he's a student teacher at Plantation High School. And I have quite a bit of detail on how he did as a student teacher, which was not very good at all. But more interesting is the things that he did while he was a student teacher that made him a failure. He would get progress reports and the things that were noted in his progress report are, of course, bad. I don't actually think there was anything good he supposedly explained to the class how he evaded the draft. And this actually, he didn't evade it. He was found not eligible for some psychological reason, which, of course, is no surprise. He didn't cooperate with, I guess, his teachers that oversaw him, didn't accept their advice. Parents would call of the students and say that he's not a proper influence. And I had to get a chuckle out of this one. It, um, he told his class, remember he teaches history, social studies, so this would have maybe been a topic, that George Washington smoked pot. And I guess this was a no-no. And this is like the one thing probably in his whole life that he ever did that I thought was cool because that's why history is boring to kids because you don't tell them cool facts like George Washington did grow hemp. Well, a lot of people did back in those days. They used it for um, to make ropes and, and fibers and clothing, I think. Sources are divided on whether or not he actually smoked it, but because being curious, I had to look this up. The consensus is that he did, and so what? It doesn't make him any less of a 
cool president and founding father and general and whatnot. Strangely enough, the people at Plantation High School told him to withdraw, but to reapply in the next year, September of 1970. But on December 18th of 1969, a cocktail waitress from Fort Lauderdale named Carmen Halleck calls her sister-in-law and said that she's excited because she has a meeting tonight with a teacher from the local junior college, and he works for the CIA, and they're going to meet to discuss him hooking her up with a job. So she's all excited about this. She bought new black high-heeled shoes. She planned to wear a black cocktail dress, which I believe is like a fancy little black dress type thing. I guess you're listening to somebody whose wardrobe consists of PJs and hockey jerseys. Unfortunately, Carmen was never seen again and she was reported missing on December 25th. Her sister-in-law went to look in her apartment, found her car keys and driver's license were missing, and her dog wasn't fed, which anybody who is a dog parent knows that that's a huge red flag. Interestingly, one of Schaefer's stories was about a woman in a black dress and high heels. He wrote that he met her at a restaurant, then took her to a mangrove forest in Boca del Mar, which was a planned residential community. She was naked, gagged, and tied to a tree with a noose around her neck. And he positioned her so that in order not to strangle herself, she had to stand on her tiptoes on top of the mangrove root that was on the ground. While she was there in that horrible position, he moved her car from the restaurant where they'd left it to a parking lot, then went back and tortured and raped her for hours before finally strangling her with the noose and burying her in the ground. In 1978, while construction was going on there and they were digging, they found some human bones, which they identified as belonging to Carmen, and out get to this later on, but eventually he would be found to have some of her belongings in his possession. So it was a definite thing that he killed her. So 1970 rolls in and he applied to Boca Raton High School to be a student teacher, but wasn't accepted due to, quote, attitude problems. In March of 1970, he applied for an internship that would last from April to June at Stranahan High School in Fort Lauderdale. It was when he was here that he first note, took note of a student named Susan Place. Remember that name? Again, all of his report cards, if you want to call them, were negative, and it was opined that he his success as a teacher was doubtful. He was, quote, very rigid and authoritative, does not accept criticism well. He was late to meetings or didn't go. He would leave class early and taught only outlines. Didn't have an, any initiative, was inadequately prepared. His college supervisor said he, quote, seems to have a severe inferiority complex demonstrating the classic defense mechanism of superiority evidenced by authoritative dictatorial approach, end quote. I think that's really interesting and insightful. In case you're wondering where I'm getting all these quotes, it's from a book called American Ripper, The Enigma of America's Serial Killer Cop. The dude that wrote it is named Patrick Kendrick, and he was a paramedic and firefighter. So cool. Thank you for your service. And also a uh, sort of an investigative reporter. He's written a couple books, but he lived in the area and he was familiar with Schaefer's case. He said that he dated one of the victims, although he won't mention who, but the book is exceptional and I'll put more about it in the uh, notes so that you can get it. Uh, as far as I'm aware, it's one of if not the only one, definitely what I would call the definitive book on Schaefer. And it has 
the psychological reports on him, the excerpts from letters and his writings, and court transcripts. Just absolutely fascinating and very in-depth. And this poor dude, Patrick Kendrick, you're going to see this later on. I'll talk about this next time. But he kept suing Schaefer did when he was in prison because he couldn't really do much. His new hobby was suing people. Anybody who called him a, a serial killer, which of course he was, or talked about him in the media and books and whatnot, he would sue. He didn't win any of them, fortunately, but this poor Patrick was taken to court by this asshole a total of three times. And I never use or rely on just one source of information, but this was probably the main one. And, well, you know, I just put all my sources, but definitely, I would say, like the definitive source. In May of 1970, his supervising teacher wrote a letter to Dr. Camp, who was the director of internship at his college. And it was quite a long letter, but some of the highlights were that Schaefer was weak in knowledge of subject matter, had no knowledge of teaching techniques, made little or no attempt to keep the class's interest, except for the little anecdote about George Washington. He had poor class control, poor class performance, and they actually surveyed the class on how do you think your student teacher is doing. And the class said he sucked. Probably not those words, but I think you get the picture. And I love this quote, and this kind of sums up pretty well, I think, his entire student teaching career. Quote, I would not advise anyone to hire Mr. Schaefer as a teacher. I do not think he knows any social studies subject well enough to teach it. I am concerned that Florida Atlantic University would consider assigning a student with Mr. Schaefer's inadequacies to the internship program. I trust future interns will be more adequately prepared and more carefully screened. End quote. In other words, quit sending us shitty teachers. This also happened in May 1970. And I just had to talk about it because it's so incredibly disturbing. And it's also very indicative of his um, fantasies and interests. In case you haven't figured out yet, his signature, you know how some serial killers have a signature, is the hanging and all the tying and the ropes and that such a thing. Just a real quick lesson in case you don't know. A signature, not all serial killers have them, but it's something that they absolutely have to do to satisfy their urge, to satisfy their psychological need. So with him, he definitely gets off on hanging and all the things that are associated with it, as we're going to see right here. He sent a letter to a publishing company of a men's magazine. And why he thought that this magazine, which talked about, I think, like, I don't know, action stories and um, I guess relatively benign subjects, why he thought they would even know this, I have absolutely no idea. But he said that he was doing research for some state department or, or whatnot, which of course is not true, on capital punishment. And he couldn't find this specific information in any library or anywhere. Remember, this is way before the internet. So he thought maybe that this place would have the information. What he was interested in specifically was when uh, people were hung, or I guess hanged is the term, as part of capital punishment, especially women, that he had heard that there was something called hanging diapers. Because as he would know, when you hang people, a lot of times they relieve their bowels and bladder. And this absolutely fascinated him, this particular detail of hanging. He was totally fixated on. So he asked this publishing company if they had any, any idea of whether or not this was true about the undergarments and about if the hangies lost control of themselves. They wrote back and their reply was pretty much to the point of, sorry, we can't help you. And I can imagine the look on the poor person's face who had to read that letter. They were probably like, what the fuck is wrong 
with this person. And as we're going to find out later, he did have a very specific reason for wanting to know about these so-called diapers. And I told you that he made friends with Ted Bundy and they would talk about, I guess, trade war stories about their murders. Ted was a hands-on manual strangler. Schaefer would always hang people by a rope so that he was not in contact with them. And the reason for that is because, as I mentioned, they would tend to poop and pee themselves. And just as he was turned off by the um, bloating and decomposing corpses when he went to commit necrophilia on them, old Jerry was also turned off by being pooped and peed upon which is, is kind of strange if you think about it. I mean, there's this sick, sadistic bastard who loves to torture and rape and hang and commit. Remember the, the stuff with the horses and cows and necrophilia? We're going to see a couple other depravities later on, but God forbid he gets poop and pee on him. Well, he was interested in knowing if these diapers did exist, and if so, how could he come to purchase some? He didn't say this in the letter, but later on he uh, said to, I don't know if it was Ted or in one of the letters or somewhere, that if he could have found these and bought them, then that would have made his killing much less messy. And another interesting conversation they had, him and Ted, was about these, their victims would either, I don't know if they would pee and poop or maybe bleed in the car, you know, how that was a problem. And they discussed various ways of cleaning car upholstery after, you know, a kidnap or murder, which is is amusing because, well, first of all, they're both in prison for life and they don't ever have to worry again about cleaning cars. And it made me think of an article that you might find in a magazine like Martha Stewart Living or something, like car cleaning tips with Jerry and Ted. So in the summer of 1970, he went to Europe and I would really like to know how he afforded this. He tr supposedly treated himself to this trip because his wife, Martha, had left him for well, reasons that are, are quite understandable. And I guess he was so upset over this that he thought if he had a getaway, it might cheer him up. Now, remember, he was a student teacher, and he supposedly also did some construction work around this time. So I have absolutely no idea how he is able to afford a two or three month jaunt around Europe and Africa. Sadly, we have very little details, or actually like no details that I know of anyway, of his overseas adventures. But he will later claim that he killed women in both Europe and North Africa, specifically Morocco. So we're going to break for now. And I hope I'm a better teacher than him. And next week, we're going to talk about the rest of his life and murders. And I don't know if we're going to get around to it or not, because there's still quite a lot of material to get through. But his story doesn't end when he goes to prison. In, in fact, things get real interesting between his imprisonment and his death. Yeah, fortunately, he's dead, or else he'd probably try to sue me. And there's a lot to talk about psychology and his, I told you, we discuss his writings. So, class dismissed.